Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. You're listening to Bill Handel, on demand from KFI AM 640. Common side effects include headache, dizziness, fatigue, nausea, dry mouth, constipation, back pain, and cough. Stop taking Bill Handel. And tell your doctor if you have prolonged erections or your breasts begin to make milk or increase in size. Here's Wayne Resnick. KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Bill Handel's show, he... Back from his summer vacation on Monday. Thank goodness he will be speaking Italian. He will be poo-pooing the state of pizza in this country and also probably saying the phrase al dente thousands of times a day. Hey, coming up at 7.50 from ABC News, former FBI agent Brad Garrett's going to be on And uh, I know that uh, there are big headlines going around. There were so many mass shootings over the holiday period. But uh, Brad has some information on some actual uh, ways to reduce those things from happening, things that work. And he'll talk about them uh, when when we get him here at 750. Let's talk a little bit about immigration. And the first thing is Florida's going really, really hard cracking down on unauthorized immigrants. They passed this law, uh, their SB 1718, and it does a bunch of stuff. Some of it is, I've got to tell you something, some of it, I think, is imminently reasonable. For example, this law requires private employers that have 25 or more employees to use the E-Verify system when they're hiring people. And if you don't, Uh, You can get a daily fine of $1,000 and even suspensions of any licenses that the business holds if there are multiple findings of noncompliance. Yes, because there's a system that exists. It's not that hard to use. Why don't you use it? Now, it doesn't say anything here about is there if if a business legitimately can show some kind of financial hardship 
preventing them from using it, I would hope that the state would have a program to make sure that any business can use it that's required to use it. But I, I don't see how that's actually being mean or too heavy handed or anything like that. Hospitals that get Medicaid are required to have a question on their admission form asking whether the patient is a United States citizen. That's probably unconstitutional. But okay. And then the thing they're doing is uh, people who have driver's licenses or ID cards from other states, they're invalidating the recognition of those cards. So if you have a Connecticut driver only license, it used to be you could use it in Florida the same way. And now you won't be able to anymore. And the same goes for Delaware and Hawaii and Rhode Island and Vermont. And these are because these cards I'm talking about, they're not the, the regular driver's license. These are special cards that are given out to people who cannot prove their legal presence in the country, and they're of limited value, meaning in some states you get a thing and it allows you to drive, but it's not good for any federal identification purposes. And Florida is saying, well, if the card you have in your hand is not good enough for the feds, then it's not good enough for us. Now, I do think this means if you have a card from a state and it allows you to drive, it will not now allow you to drive in Florida. So that's one thing that's going on with regard to their attempt to crack down on illegal immigration. But we have all kinds of immigration, including, and I, you could say maybe at the other end of the spectrum, people who come here and they want to become citizens. And this is opportune to talk about now because the July 4th holiday is prime time for citizenship ceremonies. At least 18 major cities had big mass citizenship swear-ins. I happen to know for a fact that uh, federal judges do not really like criminal cases. They're okay with civil cases, but the one thing they seem to all agree on is the greatest joy as a federal judge is to preside over the swearing-in of new citizens. And now the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service it's thinking about changing the citizenship test that you take. Some activists are saying that it's unfair and it will make it too difficult. And that anxiety about passing the test is the number one reason that some people don't pursue becoming a citizen. I can't say that they're wrong because I don't have the data in front of me. But I do know this. The citizenship test has a 90% plus pass rate. So to me, it doesn't compute that the test is so hard that people are afraid that they'll fail it when nobody really fails it. And the things that they're proposing to do, I don't know if it's going to make the test harder or not. Here's a couple of things. They're going to put an English language proficiency section on the citizenship test. And you might say, oh, well, if we weren't even checking the level of English proficiency, then obviously this is going to make it harder, except the process already does check. 
the English skills of prospective citizens. They just do it now when you have your eligibility interview with an immigration officer and not on the exam. So they're just moving that to the exam, which takes out, by the way, part of the human element that a live person is sitting there with you, going through it with you. And then the other thing is they want to put a multiple choice civics exam that you would take on a tablet because the way it works now is an immigration officer, when you're taking your citizenship test, asks you the questions uh, you know, verbally to your face. And a lot of those questions are open-ended kinds of almost mini essay questions. Well, this would make it a multiple choice question on a tablet. I don't see how that necessarily makes the test harder. I guess it depends on what kinds of questions there are and whether they're going to stick a bunch of gotcha questions on there. So it's probably fine what they're looking to do. I don't think this administration is particularly interested in making it more difficult for people to pass this test. And uh, they haven't made a decision yet. It's something that they're working on. And let's talk about healthcare. And let's talk about a weird fight that is happening in California, because the normal fight over health care and how to pay for it is uh, the people who want some kind of single pl payer plan like Medicaid or Britain's National Health Service and the people who do not want that at all. And they want something that still involves private health insurance companies and a limited role for government to help poor people. But basically to keep to keep healthcare more in the guardrails of a market system, as opposed to single payer, which is almost invariably almost has to be the government. And now it becomes a social service. But here in California, there's a big fight going on and it's between two groups of people and they both say they want exactly the same thing, that they both want a single payer health care plan in California, so why in the world would they be fighting with each other? Well, on one side, you have uh, the nurses who have been proposing something called CalCare for a long time. And there was a bill, Assembly Bill 1400, and it would have started the process of putting into place this CalCare single-payer Medicare-for-all style health care for California. But the lead sponsor decided at the last minute not even to have a vote on it. Ash Calra is uh, the assembly member's name from San Jose. And they said, hey, it was clear we don't have the votes to pass it. So why take a vote when you know it's going to fail? And the California Nurses Association are fighting mad. And they say that uh, you have politicians here who propose these bills, but then get a lot of pressure from the healthcare industry and the health insurance industry and end up either spiking legislation to do what they want and, and get CalCare going here in the state or to undermine those efforts because they don't want to put their colleagues on record with a vote. That's the accusation here as to why Ash Calra decided not to have a vote on the bill. Was that, well, they didn't think it was going to pass and they didn't want to leave behind the evidence of who voted for it and who didn't vote for it. 
And so off it goes. And this same exact idea, this CalCare idea, was being uh, pushed through the legislature several years ago and also got killed in committee. CalCare, from what I can tell, is very much what you think of when you think of single-payer health care. Uh, Government-run, government-administered health care. Everybody gets health care. And they say that you will get better health care for less money. And it's impossible to know since it isn't going to happen. But there was an analysis that came out of, yes, Berkeley, I know it's Berkeley. It's still a university, though, that that projected that the CalCare system would provide the same amount of health care for about half the cost of what is projected to be done without something like it. So that's CalCare. So who, who's on the other side of this that's saying, no, 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 we don't want CalCare, but we want single payer? Well, it's the people behind Senate Bill 770. This is a bunch of health, labor, civil rights, advocacy groups. They want 770. How different is it? Not that different. Except it's less clear what ultimately would happen. This seeks an incremental path towards what they call unified financing. So it would be a statewide system. It would pay for health care for everybody in California, but it's not clear exactly what form it would take. It could be single payer. It could be something that isn't exactly single payer. It's something else. And here's the main thing that it would do right away is guess what? It would create a work group of experts and consumers to decide what the next steps are. Oh, so... You have one group that say, we have a specific plan for a specific kind of program, and they cannot seem to get to the vote stage. And now you've got a bill that says, oh, yes, we also want health care for everybody. And our bill says we're, that, that if it passes, we'll start thinking about how it might be done. Which begs the question, are you not allowed to think about how it might be done without passing this law. Now, one of the wrinkles, whatever approach anybody is proposing for a single payer healthcare system in California is you're going to have to get permission from the feds because a state level single payer healthcare plan is still gonna use federal money. And in order to do it in a, in a true single payer fashion, you're going to have to take that federal money and you might have to use it for things that it wasn't really meant to be used for originally. And you can, and some states do, go to the feds and they ask for waivers. And with CalCare, with the CalCare idea, what it looks like to me is you pass it first. You say, this is what we're going to do. Then you go to the feds and I guess you have to hope they'll give you the waivers, the permission that you need to use the federal money as part of the system. And what this other bill is doing, because it's extremely timid and tiny, tiny, tiny steps, is it would go to the feds now. 
And this is one of the things that the people behind the opposition bill, this Senate Bill 770, are saying is, well, we're, you know, you have to get the waivers from the feds and to pass this bill and we'll be going and we'll be asking for those waivers from the feds now. But so which is better than putting a trying to put a system into place and then go ask for the permission, except at least if you have a specified system in place and you go ask for the waivers, the feds know what they're evaluating. Here, it seems like the plan would be to go to the feds and ask for some kind of blanket waiver. Hey, whatever we decide to do, we want you to say it's okay and expect the feds to go, yeah, sure, you got it, baby. We don't we don't need to know. We don't need to know what your plan's gonna be. Have at it. So that's the fight that's going on. I always try to focus on the things that people agree on. Everybody agrees healthcare is too expensive. And in a sense, none of this really directly addresses that problem. I mean, this is all about how to pay for it. I don't see too much of an appetite except trying to force hospitals to post online all of their prices. I don't see too much going on to try to attack what are the root causes of why healthcare costs so much? Is it possible that some of those costs are going elsewhere, not to actually healthcare for people? Oh yeah, it is. It's it's going to shareholders in privately owned uh, health insurance companies. Nobody's talking about doing something about that. Cars, cars are weird. Here's what I mean. Cars, you need a car. It is a rare person in this country that absolutely can live their entire life the way they want to live it without a car. There are people who don't have a car because they can't afford one. But there are fewer people who could afford a car and choose not to have it and make no major compromises to the way they have to live their life. We have become dependent on cars for the most part because a lot of the infrastructure, especially here in Southern California, was uh, built up and designed based on a car-centric focus. Owning a car is becoming more and more expensive. We know what happened during the pandemic. There was a microchip shortage. The auto manufacturers used the supply they had on higher-end luxury cars that have bigger margins. So what became available had a higher average cost. As of May 2023, a new car averages around $48,000. And it's up from 25% or it's up 25% uh, from 2020. So in three years, the average price of a new car has outpaced inflation. And there's a lot of talk about the difference between renters and owners when it comes to housing and that and that homeowners have generally advantages over renters when it comes to all kinds of measures of financial stability and well-being. And the same applies to people who have cars, whether it's owning the car or just having access to a car and people who don't. In fact, at Arizona, at Arizona State University, this guy named David King got together 
with another guy from UCLA and another guy from Rutgers, and they looked at statistics over a 55-year period. And they published a paper, and it found that basically the poverty rate went up more rapidly amongst families without a car during this period of time. So not having access to a car it isn't just a bummer. It increases poverty. Now, the good news here is that there are all kinds of groups. Some of them are in conjunction with county agencies, and some of them are purely private charities who help people get into cars who otherwise might not be able to. There's a program called Vehicles for Change on the Eastern Seaboard. Up in Contra County, uh, Contra, excuse me, Contra Costa County, the old CCC, in conjunction with their Employment and Human Services Department, they have an auto loan program called Keys that gives affordable, low-interest car loans to people. There's something called Working Cars for Working Families that's run by the National Consumer Law Center. And there's at least 120 more of those kinds of organizations in this country and they're doing and they're doing good work. And the thing that you hope is that when these people who have not been able to access a car before get access that they don't end up like the rest of us who've had cars for a while and run around in our cars with what now science is calling car brain. Car brain is basically having a a car biased mindset about everything and car brain goes back all the way to this dude that was born he was born in the late 1800s francis curzon later he became the fifth earl howe and uh he had a bugatti he had his souped up bugatti and he would drive around fast Everybody thought he was the best thing on four wheels on the racetrack. But also, he would drive around on the streets in Europe and hit pedestrians. Not on purpose, but he hit a lot of pedestrians. He even killed a few. And his thing was, that's their problem. Pedestrians and their recklessness are the main safety problem on the roads. Not the cars, the pedestrians. He was probably the first guy to openly exhibit car brain. But we all have, I mean, I shouldn't say we all have it. A lot of us have car brain now. The phrase shows up all the time on the internet. People who are into public transportation and urban planning often talk about it's car brain that's getting in the way of making cities more walkable, for, for example. And there has been some research that tries to prove how car brain works. There's a study. It's going to be published soon. It's called Motonormativity. How social norms hide a major public health hazard. And it's about measuring pro-car bias. So here's, I'll give you one example of what they did in this study. They asked people, should people smoke cigarettes in highly populated areas where other people would have to breathe in the smoke? And 48% of the respondents strongly agreed that they should not do that. 
And another, I think, 28% agreed that people should not do that. And then people were asked, should people drive cars in highly populated areas where other people have to breathe in the exhaust fumes? And only 4% strongly agreed that you shouldn't do that with your car. Here's one more. They said, if you leave your car in the street and it gets stolen, is it your fault? 87% said no. But if you leave anything else in the street and it gets stolen, half the people said, yeah, that's your fault. And that's just some example of the bias towards cars that we love so much that now is being called car brain. Brad Garrett is with us from ABC News, former FBI agent. Brad, good morning. Welcome back to KFI. Thank you, Wayne. Good morning. Hey, let's get right into it. I was, tell I was telling the people that you're going to be talking about some, some techniques and ways of intervening to try to prevent this kind of gun violence and mass shootings, and that it's a problem that that and and a, and a methodology that starts basically when people are born and and that's correct and so you really and this is based on a lot of different studies Wayne is that you really have to start sort of assessing kids in elementary school <clears throat> and i'm not talking about full-blown mental illness like bipolar or schizophrenia or things like that I'm talking more like behavioral things like hopelessness, despair, isolation, depression, uh, self-harm, things that teachers in many schools, I'm sure in Los Angeles, see every day. And the point being is if you had a mechanism in elementary, middle school, high school, then it has to be consistent here where you know teachers and educators and staff are uh, educated of what to look for what sort of baseline uh, intervention strategies, and I'm not talking about a PhD psychologist level strategies, about how do you deal with kids that demonstrate these sort of behaviors, um, and then have social workers, whomever, that are, or counselors that are probably already in the school anyway, start working with certain kids, maybe some more than others, obviously. Um, and that, that continues on as they move through the grades. It's not perfect. It is long-term. It could be expensive. And I, I think we've never seriously looked at it because we've never really thought of it this way and are clearly have thought about what it may cost us to do this. But, I mean, what are we going to do, Wayne? We, it's clear to me we're not going to do anything about guns collectively. Do some jurisdictions do their best? Of course they do. But collectively, we're not going to do anything about them. And so what are other approaches? This is one, but it's a long-term investment. You're not going to see things turn around in a quick fashion, which is hard to sell to politicians, right? Because they're looking for fixes that they can turn around and tell people, look what I fixed. Yes. Now, what strikes me about this approach is that it, the basic idea is you are looking for – and by the way – um, pro-gun rights people will always say when this stuff happens, hey, it's a mental health issue. And this is an mm -hmm. example of a way of addressing the mental health aspect of it. 
and it requires you to identify these problems like depression and anger and all of that. Does this not, though, and I'm not just not criticizing it, this requires us to start thinking about the people who perpetrate these events as human beings with complex inner lives rather than flat two-dimensional monsters. Right. And that is, that is correct. Because think about it this way. The 15-year-old, 16-year-old that goes into a school uh, tomorrow uh, and harms people with a weapon today is still someone's son or daughter. Uh, there's a grandfather or grandmother out there. There are relatives. There are people who think highly of this person that's about to go do something unbelievable, horrific tomorrow. And yes, it is hard, but the labeling creates a real problem because just to call them evil and a monster. Now, obviously, what they just did is evil and monstrous. But if you're going to look at this long form, how many of those kids could we have headed off into another direction? Because when the more one of the more important aspects of looking at kids the way I'm, I'm thinking here and way experts clearly have stated is that it makes them better functioning, productive adults versus carrying all of this baggage, emotional behavioral baggage with them to adulthood that then can manifest into crime, dysfunctional relationships, violent, you know, domestic relationships. So it has a much, it has a broader theme than just mass shootings or crime, which obviously are both huge problems. So uh, that's another way to look at it. I was struck by something um, that I saw in the research. W one thing, I, I think people know this, but it doesn't get explicitly mentioned, is of mass school shooters, 100% of them are current or former students. In but other words, no doubt. people aren't. Yeah. But this is the other thing. Apparently, in 77% of school shootings, there was at least one other person who knew that the person was planning something. And that makes me wonder, um, and I don't know how it relates exactly to trying to identify the people who are going through the kinds of mental health problems that can lead to this, but there is an interesting aspect that it is not uncommon for such a person to share their thoughts and their plans with at least another person. Do we need to train? Do we need to do peer training also of other like of students to also be able to kind of know how to navigate that if it comes to them and 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 make sure that person gets help? The other person. Oh, there is no doubt. I mean, this a lot of this is education. If you're going to propose this, you got to you got to train the teachers, the staff, uh, the management, the social workers, the mental health people that work there. Um, if there's a resource officer, uh, he or she would also need to be aware and trained. And maybe what you can do is you come across kids that demonstrate some of these behaviors. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a big, big component of it. And that's why many experts that study this stuff suggest that you really got to start in elementary school, like kid, when kids seven or eight years old, 
to start looking at the things I'm talking about. And that and it, that is not from the, the perspective is that you're trying to do a psych profile of them. I mean, this stuff is pretty – I mean, we've all seen it in people around us, right? Hopelessness, uh, isolation, despair, anger, rage. And there's easier, you know, some of these are like just normal behavior, but they're not extreme, and we move through them. What happens is when people don't get um, – they don't deal with these things through, through therapy, through whatever it might be, then it, it can manifest, and it can manifest into something extremely dark, which we see in mass shooters and other types of gun violence. All right. Very good, Brad. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, describing this approach to trying to help the problem. Appreciate it. I'm sure we'll talk to you again very soon. Sounds great. Take care, Wayne. This is KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. You've been listening to The Bill Handel Show. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.